Hi, Tim Burnett here from the SPAS team at BTL. Uh, today we're talking about going global with your examinations. And we'll be hearing from a presentation uh, delivered at Newcastle this year uh, by IB from Prometric. Now, IB is probably one of the most passionate people I know in the assessment sector. She absolutely, she knows her stuff and she just presents it in such a way that it really makes sense to you. And I hope you find this a really useful insight into going global with the qualifications. IB asks you questions like, should you be just taking the test that you've been delivered in one country for many years and just translating it and putting it straight out of there? Well, interestingly, she suggests not. There are other considerations to make, legal, cultural, malpractice, loads of other things that you need to think about when you're putting your tests live for a new audience on a global scale. Now, I'm not going to get, tell you too much about this. I'm going to leave that to IB. So here's IB at this past conference in Newcastle this year, uh, 2019, talking about going global with your assessment. Over to you, IB. So before I get started, how many people in here have exams that are delivered in more than one country? More than one country. In a lot of countries, a lot being 20 and above. Wow. <laughs> All right, perfect. So I have the right group. Perfect, perfect. So we're going to talk about what's really different when you're creating that kind of exam and how many people are considering going global. You're not global yet, but you're considering. Okay, I see a few hands. Perfect. All right, so the first question is, is there really a difference between an exam that's created for a global audience and any other exam? What would be your guess, those who have global exams? Is there really a difference? Definitely? I had yes. Is there any no? Anyone's going to say no? Well, the answer is yes. I agree with everyone. But then, when should you start considering the impact of your audience on your exam? You have to participate. When should you start? Those who have a global exam, when should you start? Yesterday. <laughs> Yesterday. I would say at the very beginning. So at the very beginning, before you put together what you're even going to test on, you need to start thinking about who your audience is. Because you'd be surprised how much that affects not only how you test, but what you can test in the first place. So another question. Can you just repurpose an existing exam? For a global audience? Those who have a global exam, can you just can you do that? No? Why not? That would be the question, right? Because those are these are these are real life things that people do with every day and they figure out what do we do. Now I would say it's not recommended because if you choose to do that, there's a lot you're gonna do a lot more work than if you had just started from scratch. You have to do validation studies to make sure that indeed your content is generalizable to that audience. You have to do a lot of pilot tests. In other words, do the items perform the same way? We already know these items. So if you use them and they perform differently, you're in more trouble than when you started. So at the beginning, start thinking about the impact of your audience. And then if you ever want to reconsider, should I just use an existing exam? I would not recommend it. I would recommend you start from scratch. Now, here are a few things to consider and why I said start at the very beginning. The representativeness of your subject matter experts, the people who are involved in even determining what the body of knowledge is going to be. You have to make sure that's a representative group that mirrors the audience. 
That's very important. I will get into a lot of reasons um, as we go. But that's not, a lot of people think it's just at the end. You bring them in at the end to kind of put a stamp on it or approval on it, but no. At the very beginning, they decide what gets on, they write part of the items, they review it, everything, the entire process. Secondly, you want to consider local practices. There are some industries where they could do some things locally, but they do know that on a global level, it's not going to fly. So there's global practices, there are local practices. There are areas where there's a blend, but there are areas where there are distinct differences, where they'll look at you and say, we, we can't do that. And others will say, why not? Sure we can. And panels like that are always very interesting because they come with different perspectives and the, the conversations. Is, sometimes you sit there thinking, do you guys really practice the same thing? Because sometimes the disparity is that wide. In that case, what do you do when you're trying to build a global exam? You want to stay away from topics like that or you want to capture, if the variety is not too wide, you want to capture all of those, document it so everybody has access to it before you can test it. Another thing is the impact of reading ability. You get into this a lot because you want to separate content, the construct you're really trying to measure from the impact of just reading and people's familiarity with whatever the primary language is. Maybe it's English. You know, how familiar are they with English and how does that impact how well they do on their test? Another thing is multiple modalities. So that ties in almost directly to the impact of reading and also to the kind of program that you have. You want to think, is there a way I can do like a practical test that sidelines the reading weights and pressure of that on the candidate and it can just demonstrate what they know? Can I use some alternative item types where instead of explaining and explaining a multiple choice, just let them drag this and drop it? You know, makes it easier or some other item type. So you need to think about that all the way at the beginning. Also, there are legal and regulatory requirements in different parts of the world that you need to consider before you start. Otherwise, it's going to be expensive for you to try to back into that. Very, very soon, you're going to run into translation head on. So what do you do? There's no right answer, interestingly. So do you translate or do you not translate? There's pros and cons for both the decisions. You have to figure out what works best for your organization. But why do people translate? Sometimes they translate to reach a broader audience. So they're like, okay, if we only have a primary language, it limits who can take it. Even if they want to, they can't because they're not familiar with it. And also, if people speak different languages and they practice in those languages, how, how fair is it to them to test in another language and how transferable is that? Also, there's cultural bias and barriers that just by the language, some people are terrified just to take an English exam, not because they don't know the content, they're so good at it, but because they feel they cannot express themselves or they cannot understand the content in that language. Also, you want to make sure that you are measuring competence. The construct is what you're interested in. You're not interested in the language and you don't want that to be um, a confound. So I would say consider translation if your program has new populations or an audience that you're interested in reaching. And also, if you do a psychometric analysis and it shows you that native primary language speakers perform differently from those who are not, then you really probably need to look into the translation. And I've worked with organizations that choose one way or the other. Some choose a primary language and they're like, our credential is going to be in this language. We're going to provide as much support as possible. We'll provide a glossary. We'll provide a dictionary. We'll provide anything you want, but it's going to be in this primary language. 
We have some others that have, have translations like 40 languages. And they have challenges, and I'll talk a little bit about some of those. But that was the best way to go. Now, talking about some considerations when you're doing a global exam, another thing is how do you deliver it? I just talked about languages. Now, if you translate, do you want them to have a pure language form? Or do you want to give them a language, what we call it, a language aid? In other words, there's a primary language, and then they have access to the other language. So maybe check a word or check their understanding of it. Do you want to present both? If you do, what's the advantage of that? What's the disadvantage of that? You have to think about how you're going to present that. And if they take a pure language form, what's the risk? Is there any risk? So that's where translation validation and the quality of your translation really comes into place. Because if it was done right and there's really a, hundred, a good match, your statistics should show that. But if there's a difference, then it becomes what exactly is going on. I have to dig into that. Also, you have to think about field testing. If you're doing a global exam, how do you make sure that indeed the exam is performing the same way across? Now, it doesn't mean ability is expected to be the same, but you want to make sure that people with equivalent ability in different places perform in a way that is equivalent to each other. And so you have to figure out a way to do a beta administration or a first administration or pilot testing or field testing, whatever you call it. But you have to target the locations and do a sampling of those. You cannot do your beta just in a location and just assume that you'll be able to generalize that data to everybody. You have to figure out a way to field test across the board. And then some of the clients do what we call a baseline pilot. They will get um, those who already have the credentials, so they know they have the knowledge then they would get them to test those forms or those different locations. If they perform differently, there's something going on. They need to go back and try to figure out what exactly that is. Also, another problem you, um, you have to consider ahead of time is the volume projection. One of the things people struggle with the most is they have a large volume in one area, but it's an area where the volume is so low, you can't even do a sound psychometric analysis to compare. So you're kind of flying blind in certain areas just because you don't have the volume in those areas. So typically, we'll start aggregating up. So you aggregate by continent or something. Try to get a volume to be able to compare. So you have to think about what that would mean and how that would impact your program and your ability to make decisions on that exam. Another challenge that's very close to that is because in one area you have high volume and maybe in another one you have very low volume, now, the high volume, the exposure is very high, right? There's a lot of candidates taking the test. And then you have to change the forms. You have to switch it out to minimize the content exposure and to move on. But in this low volume area, you probably will have maybe 40 people take the test. Now, what do you do with the test forms? Do you get out of sync? Or do you switch every time you switch? Or do you try to equip those on the back end all the time? You have to think about how you're going to handle that ahead of time. And on the psychometric end, um, there's some unique challenges, but if you plan this ahead, you can actually combat them. One is what I was talking about, the um, performance. So from the pilot test, you can get the baseline data and see if there's something going on here and you take a step back. Or the data could come in and you're like, beautiful. And then you can compare specifically the English version, translated versions. Those would be good as well. And then setting the right passing standard. If it's the same credential they're getting, you really can't have different standards. It has to be the same standard. So you have to make sure that any other compound that is not related to the constructs that you're measuring, you can take those out even before you begin the test. 
That sounds like a lot of work to do before you go in, but it saves you a lot of headache down the line. It saves you legal problems. It saves you, even preserves the integrity of your program at the end of the day because you can provide validity evidence for everything. All right, so another thing you're going to run into, just like you've run into translation, you're going to run into this issue of differential item functioning. For some reason, some items just perform differently. And you're like, what is going on? Why? What am I going to do about this? So um, the differential item functioning will help you do two things. Number one, it will help you sort out your candidates. You can't just compare everyone because apples and oranges, really, you can't compare. But it will help you sort all the apples in one bucket, all the oranges in another bucket. Then you can compare the ripe apples with the red apples with the green apples. Because you know they're apples. So it would separate your high scores, mid scores, and low scores. Now within each of those, then you can compare and say, of all the high scores, the ones that speak the primary language, English for example, how do they compare to those who don't? If there's a difference, then uh, there's something going on. Do the same thing in the mid-scoring group and say, then you know the abilities about, you can compare that, what's going on? Now interestingly, a diff analysis will tell you there's something going on, but not what to do about it. But at least you know there's something going on. Then you do what we call a bias study. So you get a group of experts in to look at it. So now, for sure, we know there's something going on. I don't know what the something is, but help me figure it out so we can figure out what to do. And then they would, if they're translated exams, the first thing they think about is a translation error. I've seen a lot of very interesting um, experiences where a word means something totally different. Not just in that language, but in a dialect in that language. And I'm like, how are we supposed to know that? But when they take a deeper look, they'll tell you, actually, this is what everybody says, but this could also mean this, so maybe this other answer is correct. So they'll look into translation errors, look into cultural differences. There's certain things that just don't happen in certain areas of the world. It just would, it's not even a possibility. So they see a question and that's on it, by default, they just don't. They don't pick it. So you have to think about what that means. Then this issue of unlocalized versus global business practices. You're going to run into that a lot, so you have to figure out how you're going to approach that. Like I said, you could back off it and stay away from things like that, or you could document and capture all of the variations that you know. If it's not too wild, you can, you can capture that. And then people know, oh yeah, you could do that, that's reliable, that's reliable, that's reliable. And finally, it might just be a matter of timing, but you need to do a bias study to try to identify what's going on. And then when you know what's going on, so that's a two-step. First of all, to confirm there's something going on, to know what is going on, and then what are we going to do? So you have two issues in your hands. You have candidates who've taken a test. You have to figure out what to do. Do you need to go back and rescore certain things? Do you need to give credit for certain questions that maybe were flagged in the bias study and give everybody credit for that? What do you do about those candidates? And then, most importantly, how would you make sure this never happens again? Like, never happens again. Do you take those items out? Do you provide more information? Do you clarify something? What do you do? So that's the point that you need to, um, decisions you need to make at the end. Now, I want to flag two security considerations. The first one is a content risk. When you're dealing with a global exam, you're dealing with possibility of content risk at a global scale. Right, it's like the, the wider your exam goes, the wider your risk goes. And there's some 
high-risk geographical areas where, for some reason, content leaks more in those areas than the other. And this is honestly not stereotyping. It's something you would notice. How many people know what I'm talking about? How many people can reel out a, a few countries to me and tell me, this, 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 be careful? No, I know you wouldn't. <laughs> but the reason, and let me tell you the, the characteristics. You will have unusually high pass rates. Unusual, I mean, genius level pass rates. And I'm like, really though? Like, I can get it if a few people get that, but everybody in the class got 100%. Like, really? Everybody's that good? And then for those areas, there's sometimes potential for content harvesting. And there's some cooperative cultures, we call it. Because they think about it as a cooperative thing we need to do. We all went to class together. We studied together. We have to pass together. Whatever that means, we pass together. So you have to really um, educate your audience as well on what that means, what the credential stands for. You know, we've had stories of certain test centers. Everybody in the test center just has to pass. And I'm like, uh, I don't know why that's fishy, but it is fishy. When everybody in a particular test center has something, you're like, okay, what's going on with the content, with the students? So content risk. Related to that is having sufficient items to sustain your bank. That's always another problem. Because you're churning out exams at a very high pace, you have to figure out how to replenish the bank. You can't keep using the same items again and again. It gets to a point where it gets old, right? And you have to figure out a different way to do it. Um, some clients have what we call localized content, where they develop certain um, item banks for certain areas, and they use it in those areas. So that way, if there's exposure, if there's risk, it's contained. I can easily address it and figure out what to do. Some people have test forms, they never reuse them. So once you've used it, that's it. So if anybody has it, good luck to them. Your risk is contained, but then you have to replenish the bank. And some of the ways people do that is using item cloning. So the item, the, there's certain areas of the items that are tagged, and that can help you churn out more versions of the item real quickly that are different enough from the first one to test the real construct without worrying about the risk of harvesting on the first one. Another one is automated item generation. A lot of clients are looking into how to do that just to be able to sustain their bank. The other very important risk I want to point out is a brand risk. Now, think about it. What is the impact of item exposure on your brand? Nobody wants their names associated with that. You don't want to see it on CNN tomorrow. Exam content on Google. You don't want your name close to anything like that. So there's a brand risk there. And think about it. Your brand is really tied directly to security in this case. And then there's inappropriate score interpretations in certain areas of the world. Some people... That's why there's a huge controversy around passing standard and what that means. So if the cut score is 70, I get 72, you get 85. Does that really mean you're better than me or I'm better than you or you get a promotion? I don't. Because, but then the study is a passing standard. We don't go above that to calibrate. Some exams do. If yours does, that's okay. That's an appropriate, that's an appropriate score interpretation. But if it's just set to the passing standard, you can't use the scores above that to rank, which is why certain um, bodies would not give you any information on past. You've passed. 
and that's it. But if you fail, they give you more information just so you can study, like diagnostic information so you know where to go back and study. But if you pass, anything above the passing score, it's not really meant to put you in one class over the other if that's not the intent. So that's another thing that um, you have to think about when you have a global exam and educate your audience so they know what it's supposed to be. Finally, best practices. The first thing you want to do is, by all means, remove, construct irrelevant barriers. Anything that doesn't have to do with the actual exam we're measuring, find a way to get it out the door. If that means you need to reduce the, um, the reading level of your exam from, say, it's eighth grade reading level, it's like a five, whatever that means, get that out of the way. So some of the ways you can reduce bias, again, is this cultural differences. Make sure that in practice you identify what those are and stay away from them. And then if there are dialect differences, like I said, within the same language, they call it different things or they do it differently, stay away from those as well. Business practices that are not global, if it's a global exam, you either want to stay away from those or you want to capture the, vari the variation. And then understand the educational impact. This issue of um, English proficiency, language prof uh, math proficiency, you want to be careful what that is. And secondly, consider the full experience. A lot of times, because there's a lot to do in the content area, we spend a lot of time thinking through content, we forget about the full experience. So for example, if it's a translated exam, you want to think about the navigation buttons, like everything the candidates will interact with. The non-disclosure agreement, like think about all of that. The tutorial, like don't forget those pieces of the exam. And then the actual exam itself, the finished pages, and their score report. So at the end of the day, they get an authentic feel of the exam, irrespective of where they're taking it or what language they speak. Now, there's another controversy around um, those who not only know the content, but they can communicate it. For example, you want to have a surgeon who knows exactly what he's doing. Like, I'd rather have that and don't talk to me, do, just do the right thing, than someone who talks to me a lot, but then you probably can't do what you're supposed to do. But there's a, there's a delicate balance, too, of both. So whatever we're testing, you have to think about that as a, as a whole. How does that affect, how, do, how does that translate globally? How can we have other modalities to support what we're doing? So how can we have maybe like a written test or maybe another component that helps nullify any advantages or gains over the other? But typically, when you're doing, creating a global exam, Think about all these things at the beginning as much as possible. Identify what the risks are if you don't have all the answers, but at least think through all those things at the beginning and then work your way through it. I believe we'll take questions at the end. Now. Any questions? So that was an absolutely roller coaster, fantastic interpretation of all the things you should be considering when you're going global with your assessment. Now IB really does know stuff so obviously please do feel free to reach out to IB at Prometric. Um, we will be putting this full presentation, the video included, on the conference.pass.com website so if you go to conference.pass.com and then have a look for the 2019 archive you'll find the presentation with all the slides there. And I do strongly recommend you sit down and, and look at that and really digest what Ivy has to say. So I've been your host today, Tim Burnett. Thank you for listening. If you want any further information about Surpass, go to btl.com slash surpass. Or if you want more information from myself, then please 
feel free to drop me an email at marketing at btl.com. Thank you for your time today and I look forward to speaking to you soon. Bye bye.